Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and the effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Sarah Everts will join us to discuss the joy of sweat. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world famous question a week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. the Grok's Science Show. Well, sweat, one of those things that we all do, but perhaps rather not talk about. What can science tell us about perspiration? Joining us today to discuss this issue is Ms. Sarah Everts. Ms. Everts teaches journalism at the Carleton University. She's written for numerous outlets, including Scientific American, Smithsonian, New Scientist, and The Economist. Is author of the new book, The Joy of Sweat, The Strange Science of Perspiration. Explores this issue for a general audience. And Ms. Everts, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Hey, it's a pleasure to be here. Well, an intriguing book, The uh, Science of Perspiration. How did you become interested in this topic? Well, I've always been slightly mortified by my own perspiration, worried that I might sweat too much you know, during a workout, uh, even during the warm-up, I'm, I'm grabbing my towel. But you know, I'm also a science journalist, so I knew that evolutionary biologists count humanity's voluminous sweating as one of the quirks that makes us unique, um, along with big brains and our nakedness. And so I thought, okay, I need to dig into the science of sweat to find a little bit more serenity rather than shame in all the sweating that I certainly do. I discovered there's so much interesting science in this seemingly salt watery fluid. You know, only really horses and cows sweat to cool down. Even our closest neighbor, the chimpanzee, are pants like a dog to cool down. And they're panting because they are trying to evaporate water from saliva off the only naked surface that they have, which is their tongue, right? Meanwhile, we are evaporating water out of sweat produced by millions of little glands all over our body. And because we're naked, we have this really excellent real estate off of which to evaporate away heat. And so what's actually happening is that when our bodies get the temperature directive to cool down, um, our sweat glands source that liquidy fluid from the watery parts of blood. So the big stuff is filtered out like red blood cells and platelets and everything else comes along for the ride. So not just salt, but glucose, hormones, vitamins, anything that's circulating in your blood comes out. And your circulatory system, your veins push up against your skin when you're really hot. That's why people with light skin uh, turn red, because they've got a ton of veins right up against their skin. And as that hot blood whooshes by, the cooling of the sweat evaporation cools that blood rushing by so that it can return to your hot core and cool it down in there. And we are the naked ape. So we have this surface area that allows this extremely efficient cooling. So even amongst animals that do sweat to cool down, we are the best. And this helped us in our evolutionary history, because if you can imagine, you know, back in the day when we're hunting on the savanna, 
most of our prey is going to sprint away faster than us, but they would eventually have to stop running uh, to cool down. Meanwhile, we can, you know, plod along and because we can cool while exercising, we could catch up with them, forcing them to run again and again and again until they expired uh, from heat stroke, which is a terrible way to go, by the way. But we could keep going and, and catch up with them. And, you know, the modern day equivalent is the marathon, which <laughs> we do and which allows us to run for hours without expiring in the heat. Incredible that a system like this evolved. So there's a couple of really important pivot points. So we've been talking about eccrine glands, and these are the ones that produce the salty sweat, not the stinky sweat in your armpits. We can talk about that later, but the salty sweat that cools you down. And it's interesting because most mammals, even though I said very few animals use this sweat to cool down, most mammals have these kinds of glands, but only in their paws, and they're not using it to thermoregulate. They're not using it to cool down. They're using it for grip. So when they need to run away from a predator and perhaps climb a tree, you need a little bit of grip and a little bit of fluid. And so, you know, what ultimately happened is that um, in primates, it was around the time between the split of the old world and the new world primates, we developed sweat glands around our whole body. So they, they moved from not just our paws, but all over our skin. But it's really interesting because even though chimps, as I said, have uh, these eccrine glands all over the surface of their skin, they're not using it for thermoregulation. They're panting, even though they have this. And so there's something about out this loss of hair and using sweat glands to cool down, which seems to be linked together evolutionarily. And it's something that's really interesting in that researchers are looking into, such as Yana Kambarov at UPenn. What about that other system you mentioned, the, the one under our armpits, the one that so many millions of dollars are spent on trying to stop? Billions of dollars, my friend, billions, $75 billion industry, crazy. Yeah, the apocrine glands. So, you know, when we talk about sweat, most of us think about that salty liquid, the stuff that's uh, sourced from the watery parts of blood, but our armpits turn into stink zones at puberty. And that's because another kind of sweat gland called the apocrine gland gets active. And its sweat is not watery at all. It's kind of waxy, a little bit like earwax, to be honest. And when it comes out of those glands, it's odorless. But our bodies are covered in microbes. Our human microbe microbiome is, you know, one of the hottest area of science research right now. But in the warm, wet ecosystem of our armpit, bacteria eat that waxy sweat. And it's their metabolic byproducts, you know, the scientific euphemism for, you know, microbial poop, that is the stinky thing. So it's not you that's stinking, it's the bacteria and other microbes dining on that apocrine sweat and farting and pooping out stinky smells that make you stinky at puberty and beyond a lot of products out there that promise to fight odor and fight wetness. And this has been an industry that started about a hundred or so years ago, around the time that antiseptics widely available for medical equipment. And, and so people are starting to think about, you know, what else can we do with antiseptics? And that's what deodorants are. They're just antiseptics for your armpits because they kill that odor causing bacteria, at least for a time, until the populations bounce back. Meanwhile, anti 
antiperspirants have like a slightly different function, and that's to actually physically block your sweat pores in your armpit. So effectively cutting off the buffet for the bacteria living there um, that would dine on that sweat and, and make you stink. Um, are they good for us? Should we be blocking those pores? Mess it with our microbiome in that way? Yeah. So I think that if you were putting on antiperspirant over your whole body and physically blocking your sweat pores from releasing their fluid and cooling you down, then you know that would be a bad idea, right? But if you only confine your use of antiperspirant to your armpit, you know that's you know a small surface area, and you've got a a lot of other real estate available to help you cool down. But it's interesting is you know there's a lot of people who worry about aluminum in antiperspirants and Aluminum is not a great metal to have inside your body, but actually we eat a lot of aluminum just in in the food that we consume because uh, it's one of the most uh, highly prevalent metals in the mantle of the earth. So, you know, sesame seeds, spinach, potatoes, and our our kidneys are really good at filtering our blood of aluminum and and getting rid of it. So certainly you don't want to dine on aluminum. It's, It's not good for you. But the most recent research which uh, came out of the European Union. Um, They have a safety committee for cosmetics and they published a report in 2020 that said that the body burden of getting aluminum from using antiperspirants is too low to be of great concern. So obviously you don't want to eat spoonsfuls of aluminum, but using it on your armpits just daily or or now and again is, is likely not a risk. Your investigation took you around the world. What stuck out about how different cultures view sweat? I certainly think that here in North America, we like to pretend that we don't sweat at all. There's so much more stigma, both for odor, but also just, you know, the existence of of wet patches, even though that stigma exists everywhere. For example, I, I lived in Germany for 11 years and traveled a lot to France. And people do wear those products over in Western Europe, but it's not like disastrous life event if you forgot or you had a deodorant breakdown. And in fact, got my armpit sniffed by a professional nose. And this is a woman who her job is to test deodorants, antiperspirants for companies who, you know, want to make a claim like stops odor for 24 hours. And by the way, armpits are great because we have two of them. So you have always a control armpit and then, you know, the test armpit. And she's French. And she told me that in North America, people want to completely eradicate any notion that we smell and, you know, replace our body odor with the smell of a citrus fruit. Whereas in France, people are looking for products to put on that sure might curb uh, odor, but more likely have a perfume that complements their body odor, that kind of puts their best foot forward uh, on an aromatic level, then completely blocks it or supersedes it or overwhelms it. How does one find themselves in a job as a professional stiffener? Isn't that great? In my alternative life histories, I think I might have wanted to do that. I I love sniffing things. So she always enjoyed odors, had a a good nose, but was able to train it further. And it's really interesting is she's very agnostic about smells. So when I went in to have her sniff my armpits and and show how they do these tests, I jokingly said to her, well, you've got a bad deal today because I knew that some of her colleagues down the hall were sniffing. Thing, um, a new coffee formulation from a, a, another client, right? So, you know, some people who have professional 
noses, use it on one day to sniff whiskey or lattes, and then on the other, poopy diapers and deodorants. So, you know, she just said, like, you learn to decouple your mind from thinking this is a good smell or a bad smell. You're actually more interested in intensity and figuring out the odorous makeup rather than, oh my God, this is bad or, oh my God, this is good. And she also said, if you smell coffee for eight hours a day and you're sniffing that, you have just as much of a headache as, you know, sniffing armpits. And so ultimately it's easy to be agnostic uh, about body odor sniffing. The other funny thing she said was if professional noses are snobby about anything. It's kind of stripped down versions of an odor. So like if you've gone to a dollar store and, you know, bought rose water for a buck, that smell is usually just one top note in rose, not that like cornucopia of beautiful odors that you get. And so they're snobby. It's don't give us the fake imitation single odor mimic, much more interested in the fullness of the real rose experience. One of the adventures you encountered was in Moscow, where people sniff sweat in search of love. Yes, I know. This was very surreal. What's funny is that sweat dating events, uh, you know, don't just happen in Russia. They happen around the world. Um, I know they've had them in New York City, in Rio de Janeiro, in Berlin, in London. I just happened to uh, go to one in Moscow. And so here's how it works. Or, you know, the premise is... At some point, you are going to smell the body odor of your lover, and it is going to be a make or break moment. And so why not skip to the chase or entirely skip the chase and use body odor as a triage for finding a romantic partner? And in practice, what happens is you go, you show up, and, and the organizers hand you a wet wipe, and you use it to you know, remove any products that you've put on that day. And then they take you through this high-intensity exercise, uh, burpees and jumping jacks and squats and whatever, uh, so that you work up a sweat. And then they hand you a cotton pad. And you use the cotton pad to dab all of your parts that might get smelly. And you put it in a jar. And the jar is numbered. And only you know the number and the organizers know the number. And then these jars are placed on a table. And everybody just sniffs through the jars and picks the top five that they find the most pleasant or attractive. If I picked your number and you picked my number, then we would be a match and we would get a bracelet for a VIP lounge that offers all you can drink vodka cocktails. It was Russia after all, um, where we could, you know, get to know each other and find out if the optics and, and hobbies also matched. That's interesting. I mean, so is there any evidence for the components of our sweat containing pheromones or chemical attractants? So it's interesting because, of course, the, these events are, are kind of fun. They're kind of artistic stunts in a way. But there is evidence that we are making social decisions based on how other people smell. So after birth, parents can identify their newborn based on their smell just hours after they were born. Siblings can identify each other even two years after they haven't seen each other. And so we are recognizing each other's odor print and we're also learning from it. So just even a, a study that came out earlier this spring, um, Noam Sobel at the Weizmann Institute found that people who were fast friends, BFFs immediately, when you profile their body odor, it's more similar 
than two random people. And so it's like we are selecting fast friends based on their similarity in BO. And, you know, a lot of people like raise their arm, uh, armpits, sorry, they raise their eyebrows at this. And there is this really interesting evidence that we are unconsciously sniffing each other when we, we meet them. So if you think about most social greetings involve proximity, whether it's a cheek kiss, a hug, a bow or a handshake where you're literally getting a hands-on collection of somebody else's body odor print. And th these researchers did this wonderful study where they videotaped first meetings um, where people were handshaking. And they found that after that initial handshake, people unconsciously bring their hand to their nose and sniff it. And I say unconsciously because when they showed the videos to the study subjects, the study subjects freaked out. And we're like, you have manipulated the video. This can't be me. <laughs> they really hadn't. And so even if you don't think you're taking a sniff of the people around you, probably unconsciously are. And yes, that did ruin handshakes for me, but it has improved party people watching um, and conference people watching, you know, watching those handshakes happen and then the sniffs. But of course, because a huge part of our body odor appears at puberty, everybody's very keen to know, okay, is BO involved in love? And there is evidence that we are making some decisions based on body odor prints. So probably the most famous is the Klaus Vedekin t-shirt study where heterosexual men were given t-shirts to wear and a sweat in. And those t-shirts were handed over to women to sniff who were straight. And they were told to rank the, the BO of these guys, and they chose men as most attractive when the genetics of any shared progeny, should they have a child together, that child would have an extremely robust immune system. It makes sense because for human history, most of our foes have been microbial. You know, you think of the plague or, or infection. So it behooves us to select mates with whom we can produce children who would have a strong immune system. But in terms of the plucking out of a molecule that actually is responsible for doing that, chemists have searched for decades in the chemical uh, space uh, around armpits and, and tried to find in the, the hundreds of molecules percolating off of our armpits, which one might be responsible for this kind of you know attraction. And, and they've come up empty-handed, which is not to say that I, I don't think that there's something there, but in pop culture, there's this idea that I will find you and I find you attractive and I will spritz on uh, some pheromone cologne onto you and you will become my sex automaton, right? Or I will approach you and I will be irresistible to you based on my pheromones. But, you know, if that ever existed in, in our evolutionary past, it's been dialed down by all sorts of competing things, including free will. And when you know how pheromones work in the animal kingdom, so like silk moths pheromone, bombacol, when the female releases it, male in the vicinity makes a beeline towards her. It's like the scientific definition of a booty call. Or androstenol and androstenone, which is the wild boar pheromone. And, you know, when the male breathes heavily on the female in heat, this pheromone, which is actually in his saliva, and she smells it, she immediately spins around and lifts her rump 
to signal she's ready to start a family. And, you know, that kind of automaton reaction, it's just not what we see with humans. And it's probably just as well we don't have anything like that because we would live in a much more dystopian dating scene than this dating scene already is. The current pandemic and everyone masking up, blocking our perception of odors, if that's affected some of our behavior. I don't know if anybody's looking into that, but I think it's a good idea. But also just think about deodorants and antiperspirants. If we are communicating with each other based on odor, then are we masking that volume by dialing down our BO with these products or or replacing it with, with other perfumes? It's kind of an interesting side effect of the $75 billion industry. But I would say that online entrepreneurs of quote unquote human pheromone cologne exist and I have gone down that YouTube wormhole and it is a weird place. Um, But they often promise that their products include and they they often use scientific terms and, and chemical names. And what's really funny to me as a recovering chemist, I used to be a chemist, is that they put androstenol and androstenone in these products. And certainly those are the boar pheromones, right? The ones that get the instantaneous reaction from a female. And actually, those molecules are found in human armpits, but they're found in both male and female armpits. And researchers have done all sorts of studies and found that like, there's not really much of a response at the levels that we possess. However, they put these things in these snake oil formulations of pheromone colognes and sell them on the internet. And it cracks me up because I think that they will attract a female. It's just going to be a female of the wrong species. (laughs) Well, buyer beware. Yeah, exactly. I mean, no judgment if that's your thing. Well, we are running slightly out of time. I'm just curious if you have some final words reading The Joy of Sweat. Um, drop the stigma and also drop the detox myth. So this idea that we detox by sweating profusely is so fundamentally wrong when you understand how our bodies work, because if we were to detox by sweating, then because sweat is sourced from the watery parts of blood, you would have to sweat out all the water in your circulatory system and you would dehydrate and die. Instead, our blood is filtered through the kidney um, and dispatches out the nasty stuff in pee. Anything that comes out in our sweat is just there along for the ride incidentally, whether it's good stuff or bad stuff that has yet to be filtered out by the kidney. So yes, goodbye detox myth and hello sweat. It's just your body trying to do its thing and, and keep you alive. Uh, We were talking with Ms. Sarah Everts. She's the author of the new book, The Joy of Sweat, The Strange Science of Perspiration. Ms. Everts, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grox Science Show. It was a pleasure. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grox Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at grox.net. For Grox Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.